Welcome to Everyday Greatness, a nice little show proudly brought to you by major sponsor ARA Group, one of Australia's greatest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness is a show hosted by a real human being, talking to some real people about real human issues that will help make you feel proud again of simply being a good solid Joe Bag of Donuts. Here's your host, Barnaby Howarth. Welcome to Everyday Greatness and thanks for listening. I'm your host, Barnaby Howarth. This is a show designed to help people realise there is greatness in being an everyday Harry Sacker Rolls. The competition between winning and losing, if it were a sporting contest, would likely never be won or lost. It would most likely end in a draw. Sometimes winning at all costs has the upper hand but then being comfortable with losing gets momentum back. Bad sports and complaining are commonplace in today's society, but with the rise of women in sport, people who are misbehaving are finally being told to pull their heads in. One of those people telling people to pull their heads in is ABC's sports journalist and personality, Tracy Holmes. Tracy has spent her career looking past just the results and the best players from weekend games. She looks at the issues that shape society. Tracy's far too modest to admit it, but Tracy Holmes is a winner. She mirrors the rise in female participation in sport. Tracy was the first female host of an Australian national sports program, Grandstand, on ABC Radio. And she was a media spokesperson for the Sydney Olympic Committee for SOCOG. Tracy was also a lecturer, a board director, a mentor and the host of The Ticket, an ABC spot podcast which offers in-depth analysis of the major issues in sports, business, politics and governance. Tracy may be a winner, but to tell us about why it's sometimes okay not to win, Tracy Holmes joins me now. Tracy, thank you for joining me. Barnaby, good to talk to you. Not sure about that intro. I don't think I've ever told anyone to pull their head in, although I've got to say... I've looked at a few people when I approach them in the hallway and they look like I'm about to tell them to pull their head in. <laughs> well, you're more than welcome to tell me to pull my head in. <laughs> Is sport always a fairy tale? Does the good guy always win and do bad guys always finish last? Not at all. And uh, that's part of the beauty of sport really, isn't it? Because you can't predict. You can look at all of those things and like you said in the beginning, you know, maybe it should be a case that there's no winners and no losers. Let's just finish even for everybody. But that's not going to be the case and that's not real life. And I think that's one of the great lessons of sport is that people can look at it. The good guys don't always win. The bad guys sometimes are victorious. There are things that are just not fair There are people that should be there to mete out justice and they aren't. Um, This happens in life and that's what I think is so beautiful about sport. It sort of captures everything else about the world inside a playing field or on a court. If women's participation in sport were a sporting contest, what would be your match report from your time starting in journalism to today? Where are we with women's equality in sport? Do you know what, when I think about that, I go round and round in circles because I remember back when I first, I was lucky enough to get a job as a broadcast trainee with ABC Sport and at the time ABC Sport was like it. So I was pretty lucky to get that job and when I first arrived I was the only female there and uh, I was shown to my desk and I was sharing an office with three of the other blokes who were all sitting there reading the paper 
And I said, what would you like me to do? And they said, well, I don't know, just read the paper or something. So I thought, okay. So I read the paper and I saw this little story about the fact that um, it was being looked at uh, as legislation to get rid of cigarette companies sponsoring sports and sporting clubs. And I thought, that's really interesting. And then I remember that one of the Ella brothers, one of the great Ella brothers from rugby, uh, was a marketing manager for Rothmans. So I went and asked somebody, how do I record an interview, please? So I rang up the Ella Concerned and did an interview um, about how this was going to change the face of sport. And I think that sort of set me off on something that was a different angle of sport. And the week after that, I started something called Women in Sport, which was like a 15-minute segment um, that they used to play on Grandstand, which was like eight and a half hours every Saturday and Sunday of men's sport. Uh, And then it got to the point where it's like, oh, we can't talk about women's sport. Let's just weave it into the program. And um, that kind of grew from there. Having said that, though, there's still such a long way to go because it's nowhere near equal. And, um, you know, women don't get the time, the recognition, the sponsorship uh, that they deserve. And and their sport can't improve until they do have that. So it's this chicken-egg thing that is slowly moving forwards. Why is it then that Australian women's sporting teams are so successful, they're so well regarded? I'm talking especially about the Matildas in football, which I still can't call football, I call soccer, and the cricket team. Why are they so popular? Well, um, do you mean popular here in Australia or globally or just in the, in the mindset of normal people? Highly regarded as, as popular teams to follow. Yeah, they are. Nice They're teams. amazing. And, and I think, you know, basically what it comes down to is that Australians, for all their talk about being egalitarian and, you know, giving the struggler a go and all of those sorts of things, we do actually like winners And those are two teams that, you know, women's sport, two of our leading teams that win on a global scale. Um, They're ranked amongst the best, um, if not the best at any given point. So that's why they're popular. And I think also there's a real, there's been, I think, a, a generational shift between, say, from the era that I grew up to now the era where my three sons have turned into young men. And I think they see it a little bit differently. You know, I think some of that great division that there was between the genders that used to be so prevalent is fading somewhat and it's okay for boys to support girls' teams. With your with your history of sport in general, let's just put women's equality aside, does it make you proud these days to see women aspire to become, become professional athletes and prime ministers and CEOs? Yeah, of course, but I I never thought there was any reason why they shouldn't. And I think this is really important because a lot of people, when they have these discussions, talk about, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Well, you can see it. And just because there's a man who's doing it doesn't mean you can't see yourself as a female doing it. Uh, I've always kind of thought of the world as made up of people. (laughs) We're all people. Uh, We all have an education. Uh, We all have our own thoughts, our own dreams, um, things that we'd like to change in the world. And and in that sense, men and women shouldn't be any different. And I think I was lucky enough maybe to the household that I grew up in. My mum and dad were both surfers and they both competed. And so what I saw from a very young age was, you know, a man and a woman doing the same thing, uh, competing and um, being very active in sport. And it wasn't until some years later when we moved back to Australia because we left when I was three 
and and I actually did see a very gender divided society. I was very conscious of it. When when you went to backyard barbecues or get-togethers or whatever, the men would be in one corner and the women would all be in another corner. And I thought, that's really weird because that's not how I grew up and that's not what I saw. And so maybe I was lucky um, and, and I just thought people are people and you go ahead. And, and you know, I used to look at um, men that I thought did great jobs in in the sorts of fields that I wanted to move to so interviewing people for instance you know so you'd look around you'd watch international television you'd you'd catch whatever you could and you go wow that bloke does it really well why does he do it well well he's listening you know what else does he do well I really like the fact that he's he's asking and trying to get stuff out but he's not judging Um, and so I never thought oh but he's a man I could never do that because I'm female I just saw that as somebody who was you know, a great listener um, and, and a great conversationalist. And, of course, I can do that. So with people being people, what are the, what are the chances of the Matildas winning the next female World Cup? Are they, are they ruthless enough? Oh, of course, they are. Um, you know, all, all of those words that you want to apply to men's sport can equally be applied to women's sport. Um, you know, they can be quite brutal if they need to be. Um, they're very competitive. They're very fit. They want it. They're hungry. But one of the greatest advantages, of course, is that it's going to be here in Australia. And we all know about home ground advantage. And they're going to have that in 2023. And um, they've got every week from now until then to prepare for that. And it's not like it's going to be easy because we're in strange times, you know, given COVID and everything else. And that's put a, a great spanner in the works for all sport, especially international sport. And a lot of our team members are based overseas. Um, so, you know, there's that kind of thing that they have to get over, those sorts of barriers and hurdles. But it will be the, the perfect scenario for them to be able to pull out that performance, the pinnacle performance to win the World Cup here at home. And is that what measures success in FIFA's eyes, in FFA's eyes, the, the win-loss record on the field? If the Matildas win but they're nasty people, is that seen as a success or a failure? <laughs> um, that's a very good question and I think all sports are changing in that regard. It used to be a case where whatever, whatever was happening um, and whatever sort of person it took, if you won, everything else would be excused. That doesn't happen anymore. And I think it's really fabulous, even to the point where sometimes not winning something is actually seen as the best result because everybody learns from that for other reasons. And I think that's been interesting. We also see where sports now are looking outside themselves. I was having a chat just earlier today about athletes, sports governing bodies and climate change and about how some sports governing bodies and athletes are leading that discussion. They're ahead of state and federal governments in that regard. They're kind of leading the way. And that's not a thing that athletes and sports ever used to get into because that's the political side of things. But this is where sport does have a voice and I think they're learning to use it. And, um, yeah, so definitely not. So nobody aims to lose in a sporting contest, but are there actually benefits to finishing second? I think there are. And one of the things that really attracted me to sport in the beginning was that 
you can look around the world and, you know, there's there's so much stuff that's mundane. There are so many jobs that you just kind of think, could I spend a lifetime doing that? Probably not. And I'm not discounting those jobs because people that do them deserve a lot of credit. But the thing that attracted me to sport is that people would go out there with the aim of winning, but they wouldn't win. And they turn back up again next week and they try again and they wouldn't win again. And they turn back up again next week. And I thought, wow, this is about resilience. This is about people that don't get disheartened or broken. They go away, they reevaluate what they've done, they try and come up with a better strategy, and they turn up again next week and they try again. And I love that. I really love that. I think, you know, everyone on the planet can learn from that element of sport. You know, don't get disheartened, be resilient go back, reassess and come back again next week. You never know. Um, It might take months, it might take years. You know those great stories of teams that have struggled forever and they finally win something and saying, oh my God, it makes you, makes your heart bleed. You know, you want to cry for them. It's, it's just so fantastic, but that's because they haven't given up. And I love that about sport. What's the point of losing graciously though? Whether you are a gracious person and take it on the chin and come back next week and do it all again, like you were saying, or whether you carry on like a spoiled brat, you've still lost. So why would you be gracious about it? <laughs> well, I guess it comes down to personality type and um, how you how you see the world and how you see your place in it. And I know, like, I've got three sons and they're all very different. And one of them, actually two of them, just couldn't stand losing. They just couldn't stand it. One, when he was like, six or seven, was a fan of the Rabbitohs rugby league team and we were living in Beijing at the time and so on a Friday night or whichever night they were playing, we'd go down to this little sports bar so he could watch the team and at half time, if the Rabbitohs were behind and didn't look like they were going to be able to catch up in the second half, he'd burst into tears, he'd storm out of the place and there were people in there, mate, mate, it's okay, like, come on. He's like, no, it's not okay. (laughs) And it took him a long time to learn that you don't have to carry on like a pork chop. You can get upset, you know, but but the thing is being able to channel that energy into something that is positive to make it work for you and to understand that you're not always going to win. Not anybody always wins, you know, unless maybe you're Usain Bolt, but... Um, that that's that's part of the lesson of life. And so it's not that you... I wouldn't suggest anybody lose graciously, fraudulently. You know, if you're really angry and you want to smash a racket, smash a racket. I don't mind about that. You know, I I don't mind Nick Kyrgios, for example. I think that sort of brutal honesty is quite refreshing uh, when so much of everyday life now is just manufactured. You know, it's all designed for Instagram. Um, I do like the reality. But you also have seen that even in the past year, Nick Kyrgios has grown up a lot. So he still struggles, but he's managing it better and he's using that energy and channeling it in a different way. That's great. So you did tell a man to pull their head in. Did you tell your son to pull his head in when the Rad Rose lost? <laughs> yeah, just not in those words. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so as a journalist, what's besides the Women's Football World Cup, what's the next big event you're looking forward to covering? 
Uh, the Tokyo Olympic Games, if we can get there. So the situation at the moment is we're finding it very hard to get a plane in and a plane back <laughs> because there just aren't any, um, because Australians are banned from travelling effectively. And that's awful. That feels like, you know, you're in handcuffs and you've got anchors around your leg uh, because I'm so used to travelling and I'm so used to being in the world. I love it. Um, but hopefully we'll find a way to get to Tokyo and I think that's going to be quite remarkable. It'll be a Games like no other, given that they'll be dealing with COVID and, um, you know, inviting the world into a place in the biggest way since COVID hit. And as we know, COVID hasn't gone yet. Not every Australian will be vaccinated by then. Um, most of our athletes might not be vaccinated. The Japanese won't be vaccinated. So there's all sorts of uh, criteria that have been put in place um, to protect everybody. Um, but you just don't know what's going to happen. So I'm looking forward to that. Of course, you're so, we all are. Now, I feel like I'm in a bit of a privileged position. And I, along with a lot of Australian people, hold you in very high regard. So I have to ask you, what's your favourite sporting memory and why? People often ask me what's my favourite sport and I don't have one. My sporting memory, look, I don't know if I, if, if I have one that jumps out. I can think about everything I've done from one-on-one -on -one interviews with people like Arthur Ashe, who was the first black man to win Wimbledon and the struggles he went through. And then, you know, he goes to hospital to have surgery for something and he gets a blood transfusion that gives him AIDS and he, he has to contemplate dying a very early death with a seven- or eight-year-old daughter and he won't get to see her live. Having those sorts of personal discussions with people right through to um, being at... Uh, the FIFA World Cup final when Zinedine Zidane got it in his head that it might be good to just headbutt somebody before the game actually began and get sent off, you know, as the captain of France. Um, that was amazing just to feel the reverberations around the arena um, to being pretty much in line with the finish line at every Olympics, that every race that Usain Bolt ran in. I've seen every single gold medal right there. You, you can't buy those sorts of experiences. Um, but equally, you know, I, I remember going to um, a press conference for the captain of the Paraguay football team, and I think this must have been in France, 98, FIFA World Cup, and somebody asked a question of him, oh, you know, it must be really difficult, you've lost again, you're probably not going to get out of the group stage, you know, you have to fly home early and, and, you know, that's really tragic. Anyway, he was eating an apple at the time and he put the apple down and he looked at the journalist and he went, tragic? No, I'll tell you what tragic is. Tragic is people in my country that don't have jobs and can't buy food to feed the children that they have in their homes each night. That's tragic. Don't talk to me about a football game that we lost and call it tragic. You need a reality check. And I thought that's that's brilliant. You know, that's another reason why I love that kind of global engagement because you learn something, you get a different perspective, you hear different stories from different parts of the world. Well, Tracy Holmes, thank you so much for joining me on Everyday Greatness. I feel privileged to have got a couple of pearls of your wisdom. So thank you for joining us. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to the ARA Group, our major sponsor. Thank you to Look Studio Australia for recording this podcast. And I hope that when you all put your devices down in a couple of minutes, you lift your head up, push your shoulders back and walk down the street proud of being an everyday Joe Bag of Donuts. I hope you can join us next week when I'll be talking to Giants netballer Sam Pullman about resilience and humility in sports. Sam is far too wise for me to handle on my own. 
So I've asked my stepdaughter, Imogen Kickett, to be my co-interviewer. I hope you can all join us then, but thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Greatness, proudly brought to you by major sponsor ARA Group. If you'd like to stay up to date, check out our pages on Facebook and Instagram or to listen to more episodes, go to everydaygreatness.com.au or wherever you get your podcasts.